0: Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. This is the inspired word of Almighty God. It has no flaws. It is incapable of flaws because it is God Himself who speaks through it. Now it happened the day after that He went into the city called Nain And many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, bless now this word which we have heard, your word. And bless also he who speaks, that I may speak what is right concerning our Lord. And you and us. And bless those who hear that we may be renewed and strengthened in this life. For we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Had the fun task of writing this sermon before our retreat, knowing that I'd have to preach it after our retreat and knowing that there might be some overlap. But I wrote this this next thought, and I didn't have to change it, which is good. I guessed rightly. But I, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine with me that this last two days, as we had our church retreat on the subject of grief, that Pastor Cook had come and in a variety of different ways, the message of the retreat had been over and over again. Get over it. Suck it up. Or or maybe even a worse thought. Imagine... Standing next to your loved one's grave and I'm there with you and in front of everyone, I embarrass you by saying, stop crying. Stop crying. Possibly the two cruelest words I could say to you next to a deathbed or a gravesite. Stop crying. Possibly the, the worst message that we could have heard this last weekend from Gordon as he talked to us about death and loss in general. Stop crying. Get over it. Uh, uh, sa- sadly, as well intentioned as many people are, this is often the kind of thing we, we imply to people who are struggling. Um, We we use these words, for example, sometimes with our children when maybe they got scared because they didn't realize we were in the next room and you you might run in and you're comforting them and you say, stop crying. Mommy's here. Daddy's here, right? And actually, that's comforting because you're able to do something about the cause of fear. But to do it at a grave site is to say however well-intentioned we might be to someone, stop crying. And yet we can't do anything to assuage the cause of their tears, to take that away from them. Sometimes we put different words to it, but it's the same message, not intended, but the same message heard. Well, don't you believe that God is sovereign in this? You might mean something really good with that. In the, ne- in the midst of sitting next to the, the deathbed, what is heard is stop crying. Two of the cruelest words a human could speak at a moment of death. And then Luke tells us that Jesus walks up to a coffin and says to a grieving woman stop crying. Has that ever struck you as.? I bet you've never read the text and thought, how can he say that? It's different for him to say it, isn't it? Unlike me or any other human, here is the one, God in the flesh, who can say to you, stop crying next to your loved one's dead body and then remove the cause of your tears he's the only one who gets to say this and not be cruel but rather as luke comments he's compassionate we have to be careful that we realize in our compassion that doesn't mean we can say everything jesus says good intentions can still be cruel when they're presented wrong. Christ, on the other hand, he can do something about it. And he does. He doesn't just say to this woman, "Stop crying." But then he removes if anything is left for tears, all he leaves her for tears are tears of joy. So we look at these these verses this morning important for us to note about this story, even though it's so short and we get right to the end of it and we know how it ends, it's important for us to slow down and make sure we realize that going into this story, this is a tragic and testified event. It's a tragic event. The widow loses her son, that shows us she's lost at least two people course we know it's probably much more than that right mom and dad may be dead by now the husband is dead now and at least this son we don't know extended family we don't know about possibly other children they would have been daughters if there were any because this was the only son it's a tragic event she she has lost it's loss upon loss I loved Friday night at the conference that he, um, Gordon asked us about loss, not grief. Did did you catch that? We're all thinking we're going to get right to the death. And he drew out of you, out of us, a lot of different types of loss. Loss of a house you grew up in, loss of friends, because of situations in life, arguments that break up a relationship, loss of a job that you loved or at least gave you income. And then he threw one more in at the end that he was fishing for us to say and none of us said, loss of a pet. I I loved that in the retreat because he was reminding us that that grief has layers and I think he alluded to this but didn't explicitly say it sometimes more than one thing at once and so as we think about this widow and this tragedy of this widow there are at least two things we need to bear in mind that There's the obvious thing that we want to jump to, which is the loss of her son. That's a horrible thing. But as if that isn't enough, we should not forget that there would be all the practical grief as well. And what I mean by, I'm fishing for how to phrase this, bureaucratic grief was one thing I thought of. And some of you have experienced this, right? Your loved one is barely dead. And you're having to make decisions. You're having to think, well, I, I got to contact the life insurance company. I have to talk to the lawyer about the will. I, I have to go to the bank and do things with the account. Maybe the house is in the other person's name. What, what are you going to do with that? What's next? Your next month is going to be a a tragedy of bureaucracy. When all maybe you want to do is curl up in your bed. And you feel that pressure right away, don't you? Feel that pressure right away. I was actually reflecting, and I, I hope it didn't come across this way to the individual, but I was reflecting on once the very day that someone had died, making, I think, the mistake of starting to try to talk to them about the funeral. I think that was too soon. I, I I know they probably had to start planning the funeral that day, but I should have let them bring it up. I hope that's not the case, from their perspective. But there's all that weight. None of the things I just listed for you. If if you, you got to deal with life insurance, that's horrible. But that's that's for your future, isn't it? You got to deal with the bank. But that's for your future. Social security. But that's for your future. When we talk about all of these things for this widow, to hear that she's a widow whose only son died bears with it in the ancient Near East all of that pressure and weight, but with none of that future security. Because she doesn't get life insurance from her son. And there is no social security. And Rome couldn't care less about your welfare. If you're going to get anything at all, it's going to be from the synagogue. But the synagogue had a lot of widows to care for. And as much as those Jews wanted to care for their widows, there was only so much they could do. Most women in this situation would be looking at a life where if they even got to keep their house, if it didn't get... Inherited by the next male relative, a second cousin three times removed? If they even got to keep their house, how are, they going to, how are they going to heat it? How are they going to feed themselves? I think it's important for us to really have the weight of this passage on us because this widow not only is grieving the loss of her beloved, only begotten son, while still perhaps, as we talked about some yesterday, who knows, maybe still deeply, deeply grieving the loss of her husband, also has all the questions of an unknown future pressing down upon her. It is a tragic story. It's also a testified story. Notice what Luke says. Jesus is coming along and he has a whole crowd with him. And this woman's coming out of the city with a whole large crowd around her. Two or three witnesses? No, two, two crowds of witnesses. And when you look at the end of the story, no one is going around the region saying, we're not really sure what happened. Seems like a scam. that what the text records it tells us that of those two mighty crowds coming together colliding as christ touches that coffin these two crowds they go out in fear and there are two things that people seem to be saying about jesus one is that here's a great prophet and the other one might be something way bigger than that god has visited us what do they mean by that Do they just mean that Jesus is a prophet from God? Probably. Or are some of them saying more than that? Possibly. But no one's going around saying, this didn't happen. Well, the guy fainted and Jesus came along and gave him, you know, fanned him, gave him a little water to drink or something. No. It's a testified event that we have before us. It's tragic but it's testified. Uh, this, this crowd coming out with the widow. Um, we, we heard a little bit about Hebrew grief this weekend. That's great. I thought that's a great setup because I was going to talk a little bit about it too. Um, the, the idea of the, the, in, the paid mourners. Or, or maybe not paid. Sometimes you got the, the not as good mourners if you didn't have any money to pay. Uh, the community would step in. And probably a widow like this would be in those shoes. But here come people, neighbors maybe, mourning. And as you move, the crowd comes around you. It's not necessarily even a sign that the woman was well known or the boy was well known. uh, Or wealthy or anything like that. All it says is that the community was there. Because... In that culture, if you were a Jew, when the professional mourners made their wail and people noticed it, then when the wailing started moving towards the city gates, you dropped your work, typically, if you could, and you joined in the communal grief. Something we can't talk about this morning, but something that I I think there was some hinting yesterday that we should think about more. And if you missed that, I'll say it here. We we need to think about that more. I don't know what the solution is because we aren't the same culture. It's not necessarily having people beat their chests and walk in a ceremony through town. But as a church, we, we ought to be thinking more about what communal grief should look like. Maybe it is as simple as uh, what was it he ended with? Bring a fresh loaf of bread And sit there maybe it's that and that is done in this community already Uh, but we we should be thinking more before the event happens together but here they're coming out but here's the important thing about this being testified to this isn't a man who died five minutes ago in the back room of the house and other than his mother no one saw him dead Remember, a young girl died in a back room of a house. And there were professional mourners already outside. Some people had probably come in and seen her, but no crowd had seen her dead body. And so no doubt in that instance, some probably claimed she was just asleep. But in two instances, one we talked about yesterday, right? Lazarus has been dead for it It's been in the grave four days, and I love the King James version of the verse... He stinketh. This isn't quite that far, but it's pretty close. They're getting him to the grave before he stinks. It was a fast-moving thing, but enough time has passed that they've done whatever embalming they're going to do with any, uh, and they, they've done whatever preparations and ceremonial things in the house, and the wailers have been in the house for whatever period of time, and the woman has sat next to her son for an hour long and now they're bringing him out, which means enough time has happened that a significant number in this crowd know he's not just fainted. He's dead. So it's a very testified to event, and it's a tragic event. And we find, we find Christ's compassion in our text. He saw her. Her. Here's this crowd. But all he's seen is this woman who has lost everything. And he has compassion. And this is what we find of our Savior over and over again, isn't it? He has compassion on sinners and on sufferers alike. Those who are oppressed by sin. And those who are suffering because death came into the world through sin. Psalmist once wrote of our Lord and of his experience of our Lord in the midst of struggle. The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. And what's the conclusion he found when he did that? Gracious is the Lord. And righteous, yes. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low. He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. That is a compassionate Savior. We see Christ's action as well as His compassion. And two actions He takes. One, He touches the coffin with His hand, and the other, He speaks with His voice. I'm only briefly going to say anything about the hand part, because we want to focus on the voice, but but the hand part does matter. Christ put His hand on the coffin. We could say a very practical reason for that, He was stopping them. <laughs> Let's stop and talk about this. Let's stop Stop. making your backs ache carrying the coffin to the gravesite. But something else is happening there as well. Because ceremonially, that action would have made Christ unclean. The law of God in the imagery of the decay And the perverseness and the contagion of sin and its effects had very strict laws about touching a corpse. If you were the pallbearer, you were in essence committing yourself out of love to being ceremonially unclean and removed from the community for the next week. Christ reaches out and touches. But you, you know he doesn't end the story going into isolation, does he? His name goes out with force into the community, and he keeps doing his thing. because rather than being made cont- gaining the contagion from the coffin, our Lord, reverses the contagion. In place of the decay, he gives cleansing, cleansing, purity. It's with his voice he raises the man, but he's already, he's already stepped into the moment with his hand and proven that he is, well, J.C. Ryle says it so well, death, the last enemy, is mighty, but... He is not so mighty as the sinner's friend. Do you remember that? When you are suffering, death, sickness, cancer, decay, brokenness, loss, bank accounts, it all feels mighty. Not so mighty as the sinner's friend. Christ touches the coffin and the contagion goes the other way. And he speaks. He speaks with a voice of authority. He calls this man, Young man, I say to you, arise. So the man sat up. What a statement. So he sat up. Luke doesn't write it how we would expect it to be written. No, it's a fact. We've had enough of Luke so far. He thinks, even though he's a doctor, even though he's a medical professional, Luke thinks we should all have gotten it by now. So he writes it in the most humdrum manner he can. Jesus said, rise up, so he sat up. There's another example of raising of someone from the dead that has already happened. Elisha the prophet, Second Kings chapter 4. We refer to him raising the Shulamite woman's son. I was comparing the two this week, last week. And thinking it's a bit of a stretch for us to say that Elisha raised the woman's son. Do you remember how the event went? Elisha threw himself down, his body on the corpse, and pleaded with heaven. Prayed to God. He did it again and again and again. It was a toiless task for him. It was prayer and pleading and God answered and raised the boy. Look at our text. Jesus doesn't pray to anyone. He doesn't request it from anyone. He doesn't have to plead. He commands. Sit up. Sit up. Get up. Probably not with that tone sit up get up so he did I think sometimes we think that Christ gained power over death in his resurrection or maybe in the midst of our struggle here below sometimes we think someday Jesus will have power over death but we're still enduring it now. But neither of those is a biblical view. Right here we have the proof of it. Jesus, Lord of life, always had the power over death. Jesus always had the power over death. Now something unique does happen in his resurrection. There's a public declaration of his power. In his resurrection. There's the Father declaring to the world. And he does so through the Great Commission. At the resurrection. That Christ has this authority. But Christ had it before. And we just didn't always see it. Here it is. He speaks. And the man comes back to life. This was unseen authority prior to Christ's coming. But it wasn't unforeseen authority, was it? Two of the earliest godly figures we have presented to us in history saw this and anticipated it. Father Abraham. We read, we actually read this yesterday, I think, at the retreat in Hebrews 11, 11. that Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son. The author of Hebrews is kind of on the nose, isn't he? His only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. What is the author of Hebrews saying? Abraham believed that God's promise was more certain than than what? Science and biology? His own eyes? Uh, I mean, that's... You offer up your son in a sacrifice, he's dead. But Abraham says, But God's promise is so certain. If God promised this and he told me to do the other thing, he's going to raise him from the dead. Way back then, he wasn't the only one who foresaw the power of Christ over death. Job, who probably lived sometime in that general vicinity, anticipated this same thing about his Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Anticipating Christ, he said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in this flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. In the New Testament, there are two types of things we might call resurrection. There's the one that's in our text, which some would say isn't properly a resurrection. Some would call it a resuscitation. Because this man was raised from the the dead. He was really dead. He's now alive. Probably at some point he buried his mother and mourned over her grave. And then he died. He's not hidden away somewhere in a cave. He, he's dead. It was a temporary bringing back to life. Same thing with Lazarus. Same thing with the, the young girl who was raised back to life. Same thing with it's Dorcas, right? Or is it Lydia? Dorcas in the book of Acts. They, they were all brought back they all died again. The rest of the New Testament is more preoccupied with a different type of resurrection, with an eternal resurrection, when we will be raised at the coming of Christ, either to eternal judgment or eternal reward and blessedness of life in the presence of Christ. But these texts are given to us of resuscitation to assure our hearts about the resurrection. It is no thing at all for Christ to say, sit up. And he sat up. And we know from the New Testament that one day the trumpet will sound And Christ will descend with a shout. What word is it going to be? It's not been revealed to us. Some speculate it is arise. Because what happens? Everyone gets up. Everyone will be raised from their grave. The same one who spoke and so naturally the man got up and talked with his mother will shout and those who have died will be raised and those who are still alive in the lord will meet their brothers and sisters and together meet the lord in the air and so we shall ever be with the lord it's important there for us to listen to his voice now as He reveals Himself to us in the Scriptures, to hear His voice calling out the free pardon of the Gospel, in which by His taking judgment for our sin upon Himself and breathing new life into us by the Holy Spirit, we are spiritually raised today. The new man, the new woman, created in Christ Jesus for good works, with this spiritual resurrection today is the absolute guarantee the Gospel gives of bodily resurrection in the future. And lest we shrug off the story of this young man's resuscitation as evidence that Christ has power, yes, over the body, not just the soul, and will reunite the two, we have in the New Testament the emphasis that the greatest testimony that we will be raised and our bodies and souls be reunited as Job told us they would is found in the risen Christ Himself. We hear from His own voice in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And again our Savior speaks to us. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. But we are given a task. We who have received this spiritual life and long for his coming to have the bodily resurrection and if we're still alive, our bodies glorified. We don't miss out if we're still alive. (laughs) Our bodies will be glorified just like the risen bodies are. But we're given a task while we wait for that day We read it with Peter earlier. A task to comfort one another. Comfort one another not in now, but in the then. See, that's why, unlike Christ, I can't stand next to your loved one's grave and say to you, Stop crying. Don't you know Jesus told that widow to stop crying? You should stop crying too because Christ hasn't said stop crying to you yet or to me but one day one day he'll wipe the tears off your face personally whether he'll use words or not in that moment stop crying will be the theme of the hour as sin death, hell, decay loss, pain suffering all removed from you. Not stop crying, but you're still going to have to stoically endure all of this. But a one day, one day, no more to endure at all, so stop crying. You don't need these anymore. That will be the Master's Word. And now, even as we cry, that is what we remind each other of in comfort now. One day we won't need these tears anymore. He'll speak. So we'll rise. Thanks be to God.